Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Support for small town secrets comes from Manscaped, who is the best in men's below the belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels. Let me ask the guys out there something Have you ever tried to groom your Sasquatch? only to have it go horribly, horribly wrong? Well, Manscaped has you covered. That's why Manscaped redesigned the electric trimmer. Their lawnmower 2.0 has proprietary skin-safe technology, so this trimmer won't nick or snag your nuts. Manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. And don't use the same trimmer on your face that you're using on your balls. That's just nasty. Manscaped also has the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing, ball deodorant, and moisturizer. You already put deodorant on your armpits. Why not put deodorant on the smelliest part of your body? Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS, one word, at manscaped.com. Always use the right tools for the job, and your balls will thank you. Remember, get 20% off and free shipping with the code BIGHEADS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off for free shipping at manscaped.com with the code BIGHEADS. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. Tonight, we talk Woodrow Derenberger, Indrid Cold, and all the other wacky things that were flying around the skies in the Point Pleasant area in the late 1960s. It's Point Pleasant Part 2. All that and more on Small Town Secrets.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 2.09 of Small Town Secrets. And as I said at the beginning, this is uh, Point Pleasant's part two of three. So if you listened to the last episode, and I hope that you did, uh, this is like watching uh, Terminator 2 before Terminator. If you didn't, then we talked about uh, Point Pleasant and the Mothman in the first episode, and of course the collapse of the Silver Bridge, all of that stuff. Uh, this episode, we're going to talk more about uh, Indrid Cold and Woodrow Derenberger and a bunch of the other kind of UFO extraterrestrial stuff that was also happening in and around the Point Pleasant area at the time. The thing you have to understand about Point Pleasant and the Mothman stuff is that it wasn't just Point Pleasant. It was an area. Uh, a lot of northern West Virginia and southern Ohio was covered in these sightings. So there's other there's other towns in this story. And because really when we talk about Woodrow, we're not really going to talk about uh, Point Pleasant that much. We're going to talk about Parkersburg, which is where he lived in Mineral Wells. We well, worked in Parkersburg, lived in Mineral Wells and stuff like that. But they're all in that same kind of Flap, the Mothman Flap, if that's what you want to call it. That's what I'm going to call it. And it's an it's it's a part of the story because it just happened around the same time. But it is just as juicy of a story of Mothman, if not maybe a little juicier. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some UFO stuff. Uh, we're going to talk about some Keel and Mary Hire stuff again. Which is going to, like I said, I'm going to reiterate, that's the third episode. Really get into Keel and Mary and what they saw, the men in black stuff and crazy phone stuff. And, you know, their phones going wild and strange emails and, you know, all that great stuff. Just all the weirdness, the high strangeness that those two experienced, mainly Keel, in, in their research and their pursuit of this Mothman story. But tonight... It is Woodrow Derenberger and Indrid Cold's night. Um, also, we have a super special... Uh, I keep calling it Listener Stories, but I don't think I'm going to call it that anymore. I'm going, to, I'm going to be calling that segment Your Small Town Secrets. Uh, it just has, you know, it's got some branding to it. It's not just generic listener stories. But tonight on Your Small Town Secrets segment, we're going to be talking with... Carl Pfeiffer and Connor Randall from uh, the amazing Hellier documentary, Hellier Season 2, and uh, Spirits of the Stanley from Estes Park, the Stanley Hotel. So we talk about all of that, and that is going to be later in the episode. And that was fun. We just, just did it a few hours ago, fresh tonight. So stick, stick around for that. And I've got some other stuff we'll talk about, some other Hellier-related stuff, but I'll get to that when we get to it. But let's take a little little chance here to check out a promo from another Big Heads Media podcast. This week we have a Chibli's Playground, 
So uh, take a listen, uh, check them out, and I'll be right back after this. Hey guys, Mike here, a friend from the podcast of Chibli's Playground. It's a podcast about board games, pasta, and a whole lot of fun. You can find out about sweet new games that are coming out, sweet old games that have been out for a while, and the best favorites. Who knows? Someone might even get a golden hoodie. Matt, tell them where you can find them. Uh, you can find us at uh, Chibli's Podcast at Twitter and Instagram. And also you can find us on uh, Chibli'sPlayground.com. Wow, you guys nailed it. Good job, good job. Nailed it. Yeah. I got an IMDb page, so. All right, and here we go. A uh, lot of notes tonight. I had two good but short books that I kind of used. Well, not kind of. I did use them for this show. They are, cor- they are of course, Woodrow Derenberger's book, Visitors from Lanulos. And a Tawanya Derenberger's book, his his uh, daughter, Beyond Lanulos, Our 50 Years with Injured Cold. And I also used a little bit of stuff off of from the Mothman Prophecy still. And uh, Eyes of the Mothman doc from last, last episode. Uh, they're two very short books. If you have both of them together, it's like 172 pages or something. And at first, I was really like, oh, this will be quick and easy. You know, I'll be able to go through and highlight some stuff and, you know, take some notes and be going. These are really short books. But it's kind of a weird misconception because because the books are so short, they're very they don't have any filler. They don't have any fluff that a lot of, you know, paranormal books have, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying. So I found myself literally almost having to highlight and take notes from something in almost every chapter of those books because. They, you know, like I said, there's no filler or anything. Everything is just about the story. It is the story. So, and like almost every page ended up being important. Whereas sometimes you can kind of pick around and, you know, get to the point to what you want in a lot of these books. But uh, not the case with these. They were short and to the point, but also everything in them was pertinent information to the story. So I've got a lot of notes. I've got a lot of uh, bullet points here. Probably more than I think I may have ever done for any episode. So, see how long this goes. But we're going to start with the story of Injured Cold and the story of Woodrow Derenberger. That's kind of going to be part one of of this section. And then part two, we're just going to talk about some other UFO sightings, some other alien, quotation marks, sightings. But let's start right now with uh, the story of Injured Cold. Just slightly before the events that would become the Mothman Saga, another encounter would happen along West Virginia Road near Parkersburg. Even though it has little to do with the Mothman, it's often rolled into the story. The simple reason for this is because Keogh started researching this case alongside the Mothman case and decided to include it in the book. This is the story of Woodrow Derenberger and his friend, Indrid Cold. It would start on a rainy evening on November 2nd, 1966 at around 7 p.m. Derenberger was driving to his home in Mineral Wells, West Virginia, from Marietta, Ohio. He was on I-77 and had just passed through Parkersburg, West Virginia. He was driving his Ford Econoline van. Woodrow was a salesman, and his van was chock full of his wares. On his drive, a stereo would fall from the back of the van. This caused Derenberger to flip on his dome light and slow down so he could see what had fallen. He let a car pass him. And once the car passed, 
a weird ship of some sort hovering low to the ground came up beside his car. The craft was around 45 to 60 feet long. Derenberger described it as an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney flaring at both ends. The ship continued on in front of the van, pivoted, and landed long ways across the road, blocking Derenberger's path. And um, I have a picture, I have a picture in the show notes of what the ship looked like, and it, it really is like, I don't know how to think of it, but it's, it's a bulge in the middle, and then kind of that just flares on the end a little bit. Think of like a bow tie, but with a really fat middle tie, and the bow part is very truncated and small. But there's I have a pretty good pretty good illustration in the show notes that you can check out to see what that looked like. A man got out with large round sunglasses and a wide grin on his face. He was around 6'2 with a very dark tan complexion and slick black slick I'm sorry, this is really hard to say. Slicked back dark hair. The strange man approached the van's driver's side door and asked Woodrow to lower the window. He apparently did this by telepathy. Woodrow did as he was asked, and the man told Woodrow that he could call him cold, and asked Derenberger a series of questions, such as if he worked. Derenberger said yes, and that he was a salesman. Cold then replied that he was a searcher. And I think, um, from what I can gather in the book, that he was a searcher. He was in search of, I think it was his job, to uh, fly around and track down humanoids which are aliens that look very much like us, but they have uh, different, you know, they have kind of slick back hair, and they have different eyes, and uh, they're not evil in a sense, but they have some, they're very, you know, very fluid with some of their rules. Uh, for example, in the book, Derenberger points out that uh, humanoids have a tendency to steal stuff, not so much because they steal stuff, but just because in their culture... If something is just laying out in the open, then that means that it is fair game for whoever comes across it. So I think that's when when Cold refers, refers to himself as a searcher, it is because he he's going around looking for these things and probably probably other things. Cold then asked what Parkersburg was, and Derenberg explained that it was a city, and went on to explain what a city was. Cold said that places like that on his planet were called gatherings. Cold and Derenberger talked for some time on the side of the road. Cold told him that he was friendly and meant no one any harm. Cold asked Derenberger to report their interaction to the local officials. Cold then got back in his ship. It was at this point that Derenberger noticed that there was a second person in the ship and left. Woodrow hurried home as quick as he could. After coming home and going straight to his wife to tell what happened, uh, after calming down, he, or possibly his wife, did call the police and report what had happened. It would not take long for three men to arrive at Derenberger's door. The Woods County Sheriff, an officer from the Parkersburg Police, and a plain clothes man who was perhaps FBI. They all came and sat down and talked with Woodrow. The police officer did let Woodrow know that someone had reported seeing two men on the side of the highway talking by a van, but didn't see a spacecraft. After a while, the men would leave. Shortly after their departure, there was another knock at the door. This time, Woodrow was met by four men in black suits with black ties. All four wore sunglasses, even though night was in full force. They threatened Derenberger, 
told him not to talk to anyone else and to retract his statements. Derenberger refused their demands and probably told them to leave. The foreman got in a black car and drove off. He would be visited by MIBs a second time in August of 1967 at the appliance store he worked at, and they came making the same threats. The next day on the 3rd, Woodrow Derenberger would be asked to be on a local TV station, WTAP-TV, to tell of his experience. He would be questioned by people from the media, but also from the police and even the military that evening. The Derenberger family was even invited to Cape Canaveral, Florida, where Woodrow was questioned by a myriad of government and military officials. Woodrow was also given an electroencephalogram, which seemed to prove that he was not suffering from any sort of brain damage. And I will link to, uh, there's, you can, I mean, you can do a search on it for YouTube, but I'll try to link to one of Derenberger's uh, TV interview. If you've ever dug into the Mothman case at all, you've probably maybe even seen it or at least heard some audio from it. But I'll, I'll link that so everyone can check that out. It would be after this TV interview that Woodrow's house would be swarmed with reporters and would-be contactees. At first, the family welcomed them, but soon they became bothersome. The cops would often come and shoo them off, only for them to reform soon after they left. It got so bad, it affected his work. Woodrow would go on sales calls, only to find that they were just bait to get them to come out, to get him to come out and talk about UFOs. His son was made fun of at school, and they end up having them move several times over. Each time, something would spark interest in the story, and it would happen all over again. So eventually, I think he had to, you know, I think he had he ended up quitting salesman because he was just he was losing money, he was losing commissions because, you know, either he scared people off or they just wanted him to come out and talk about UFOs and never buy anything. And they were also like bugging him at work. MIB showed up at work. And he eventually kind of tried to use his experience the best he could by going on, on talks and stuff to make a little bit of cash to cover that. Derenberger also found out after the interview that he wasn't the only one that had seen Cold's ship. The Higgins family saw Cold's craft on the highway that night as well. Another man driving down the same road was also followed by the ship, but didn't want anything to do with it and quickly drove away. There would also be two truck drivers who would be stopped by the ship that night, but they didn't give their names and did report it to the police. And I think later they, they did actually talk to Keel. Uh, I'm in the process of trying to find out if that's in any of his books, uh, the truck driver story. That would be interesting to find. Uh, November 4th would be Derenberger's second contact with Cold. Once again, Derenberger was on his way home. He was contacted via telepathy. At first he tried to resist, but eventually let Cold go on. Cold told him a few new things during this session. His name was Indrid Cold. He came from the planet Lanulos in the Gammamede system. And uh, in the book, Woodrow speculates that this was uh, false info so that you couldn't quite pin down the location of Lanulos. Cold went on to say that his planet was very much like ours, with rivers, oceans, and trees as well as many of the same animals. Indrid also stated that he was married to a woman named Kimmy and had two sons, Connor and Connard, as well as a newborn girl, Kimulus. After the second uh, session, if you will, Indrid would go on to visit Woodrow many times at his home, along with his friend and crew member, Carl Ardo. 
On the first visit, they would talk about how Indra's society came to be. A ship crashed on Lanulos, possibly from Earth. The ship could not be repaired. At first, the inhabitants broke off into groups, but soon came together and formed a peaceful society. These talks would go on long into the night, often on Woodrow's back porch. The funny thing, that was since injured and Carl looked human, many of these would-be alien hunters swarming around Woodrow's house had no idea that the two of them were right under their noses. And i that's what they say in the book, is that they were, that he speculates they might have been from Earth, so I think what he's positing is that way back in the day, we were intelligent enough, you know, some ancient alien stuff, we were intelligent enough to get off this planet, and a big group of them did, and crashed on Lanulos, and had to do what they had to do and populated Lanulus, so maybe that's why they looked so human is because they were. During those late night chats, Woodrow claimed he was encouraged to take a trip to Lanulus. For a while he hesitated, visiting the ship but declining to leave Earth. It would take him some time to muster up the courage, but eventually Woodrow would go to Lanulus quite a few times. On his first trip, he was not permitted to land, but only fly around on the ship and observe. Woodrow's second visit on May 11, 1967 would be much more eventful. There he would land and Cole would take him through a gathering, which is a city. They visited some stores and talked to other people from Lanulos. One of the more interesting facts about the planet's people is that during the warm months they would go completely nude. Woodrow would even visit Indrin's house, which was a simple one-story brick building with a uh, glass facade so the front of it was all glass. Woodrow made an agreement with Cold and his friends. On his third visit, Indrid asked him, asked him to tell as many people as he could about his experience and let people know in an attempt to bring friendship and understanding to as many as he could. Woodrow would do this. For a time, he went around giving lectures and talks, telling everyone he could of the peaceful people from Lanulos. All this came at a price, however. Derenberger's wife, whose name I, I'm not sure, I don't think it's in the book, and I tried to find it online, I couldn't, so I'm not sure what his wife's name was, uh, soon grew tired of his constant and sudden departures to talk about UFOs, or to go on and be on one. This, coupled with the on-and-off media attention, eventually drove a wedge between the couple. She would eventually move to Cleveland with the children and remarry. Woodrow would do the same thing, not only remarrying, but also moving to Cleveland. Woodrow Derenberger would pass away in 1990. According to Woodrow's daughter, Tawana, Indrid Cold, Carl Aldo, and their boys all attended the funeral. And of course, no one was none the wiser. But that's not the end. Tawana says that she would get regular visits from Cold, Arlo, Ardo, and their children. In September of 2018, Tani would post on Facebook that Indrid Cold, Carlo Aldo, and Demo Hansen who was another crew member, who I think was also supposedly from another planet, uh, passed away on the 18th of September 2018. Uh, if you've watched Hellier and you're in Season 2, they do talk about this, about how apparently they were in a ship and it crashed, and, and that is why they are no longer with us. But that is the tale, and there's a lot in the book. He goes into a lot of detail about the society and stuff, um, you know, I, I sometimes about this story, I kind of wonder about was some of it, I feel like it's one of those stories where, uh, some contact did happen, 
but maybe a lot of it has been exaggerated throughout the day, you know, especially like the Lanulo stuff, because so much of it just mimics what we have here on Earth. But if his story does hold true and he his his uh his idea that they were originally from Earth anyway, then that would kind of make sense, you know. They might, who knows what they were doing out in space? Maybe they it was an ark and they had a bunch of you know animal specimens with them or something like that. But it's an interesting tale. It came, like I said, it was in that same vein, that same time, around that same place. And uh, never overlooked, really, but uh, I think a lot of people know the story of Indrid Cold and Woodrow Derenberger, but don't really know about the Lanulo stuff and, you know, his daughter and what, what they all went through and everything. And that's that's really why I wanted to give, devote, you know, a whole section to just that part of the story. Instead of lumping it in with the other Mothman stuff. But that is not the only thing that was going on in the skies around Point Pleasant around that time. Like I said, uh, a lot of UFO reports. And we're going to get into some of the more uh, fun ones, some of the more interesting ones, uh, here in just a little bit. cinematic documentary series Hellier returns with 10 highly anticipated new episodes poised to change the way paranormal television is experienced following a search for strange creatures in Hellier, Kentucky a team of paranormal investigators are contacted by a mysterious figure with new information about extraterrestrial contact in rural Kentucky after following up on loose threads from season 1 the team prepares to head deep into the underground caverns of the Mammoth Cave System on a quest to learn the truth about a supernatural virus spreading through the Appalachian Mountains. What begins as a fresh lead soon descends into an Appalachian conspiracy involving murder, occult rituals, and an ancient intelligence, forcing the team to question the true nature of the phenomena. All episodes of Hellier premiere exclusively on Amazon Prime on Friday, November 29th at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time and free of charge on YouTube two weeks later on Friday, December 13th. Check out hellier.tv for episode descriptions, downloads, detailed series information, behind-the-scenes looks, and special features. Follow at WeirdHQ and hashtag Hellier more exclusive content and updates. Hellier was just a symptom. Indrid Cold wasn't the only spaceman zipping around the skies in and around the Point Pleasant area in 66 and 67. There were plenty of other reports of crazy things in the sky during that time. Three days after Merrill Partridge's dog went missing, he was attending a pool party at a neighbor's house. Everyone at the party witnessed a large gray craft that either was close enough or large enough to blot out the sun. And I bring that one up, it's a short one, but I bring it up because if you remember from the first episode, Merrill Partridge was the, the second witness to uh, some strange activity involving the Mothman. His dog went missing. He saw some strange glowing red lights. And uh, then three days later... He has another experience with him and everyone at this party sees this uh, huge craft in the sky. Charles Hearn and his wife and their neighbors would also have an extraordinary experience. 
It was around 6.30 in the morning one day in December of 1966. Hearn lived across the river from the TNT area in Cheshire, Ohio. That morning, Charles and his wife were walking their dog when a red light on the opposite riverbank caught their eye. In the light's glare, they could make out tiny human-like figures milling about on the riverbank. The two were so excited, they went and grabbed the neighbors. For a few minutes, they watched this object give off a strange series of colored lights before it shot off and vanished into the sky. On March 5th of 1967, a Red Cross bloodmobile had a wild night. The driver was Bo Schertzer. He was accompanied by a nurse. They were transporting a large blood donation back to Huntington, West Virginia, along Route 2, which runs, a, which runs, a, runs parallel to the Ohio River. The night was quiet, and cars along the river road were sparse. As the two drove, a white glowing object came straight for the vehicle and started to follow it. Doing what most of us would do in such a situation, Bo punched it in order to get away, but no matter how fast they went, the glowing object kept right up with them. Looking out the windows, both Bo and the nurse saw arm-like pincers coming down from the object in an attempt to pick up the entire bloodmobile. Before the car could be abducted, an oncoming car came in the view and scared the thing off. Uh, that I believe they went and made a police report about that one. A few days later, at the TNT area, Harold Harmon, a Point Pleasant police officer, would see a dark object floating in the air just above a pond. He got such a good look at it that he could see windows. And after watching it for a few minutes, it silently flew off into the night. The Lilies lived around the TNT area on Camp Connolly Road and they would not only see UFOs, but would have something intrude in their home. The phone and TV would start to act funny, and when this happened, they knew that the lights in the sky would soon follow. At times the craft were so close, the family could make out diamond-shaped windows. Soon after the craft started coming, they would start to notice other things, such as cars stalling out for no reason. Then things would start to happen in the house. There would be sounds of doors slamming, and metallic banging. When interviewed by John Keel, he would ask the family if any of them have had dreams of intruders in the house. Linda Lilly, the daughter of James and Jackie, would tell John Keel of a nightmare she had in which she saw a large man who wore a checkered shirt. Her screams woke up the whole house that night. And uh, that seems to me to be very reminiscent of the, uh, what do they call that? Not checkered shirt, but, um, the flannel man that people see <clears throat> kind of in conjunction with uh, shadow people that's a that's a thing that goes around a lot especially especially now it seems to be it seems to be picking up speed in the spring of 1967 a young couple were spending some time under the stars near Ravenswood West Virginia things were getting a little hot and heavy in the back seat of the young man's car when an intense blue light flooded the interior at first they thought it had to be the cops it was anything but. It was a bluish ball of light hovering just a few feet off the ground, just outside the car. The girl screamed, and it seemed to react, backing off just a little. After a short time, it disappeared. They got dressed and left the area. When they got in the town, it was after 12.30. They had seen the orb at around 10.30, and somehow had lost two hours. 
and they could not account for any of it. So they sit there and said, like, oh, we only watched this thing for a couple of minutes, but it took them almost two hours to get back into town, which didn't take that long to get back to where they were at. A very exciting incident would occur on March 31st of 1967. Doris DeWeese witnessed a bright object zip across the sky and slam into a small shed. The shed happened to house the Point Pleasant police radio transmitter. The shed caught fire and the transmitter was damaged. Police and firefighters rushed to put out the blaze. Uh, but the Point Pleasant police would be without radio contact for several days after. Even Mary Heyer and John Keel would have a couple of UFO sightings themselves. One night, Mary and Keel and a couple of Keel's friends were on a hilltop just outside Point Pleasant. Mary would first point out a slow-moving red light. The light soon vanished behind the cloud and did not emerge. Several minutes later, a plane came out the other side of the cloud. They all laughed at their mistake, but soon after, Keel thought some things about what they saw were strange. When the light went behind the cloud, no one could make out the shape of a plane. It was only after it came out that they clearly saw the plane. Also, if I may point out, back in the 60s, and we did, uh, they were testing the Harrier jet back in the late 60s, but I don't think it was out out yet. We didn't have a lot of planes that could hover, especially around like Point Pleasant. So how could a plane hide so easily behind a cloud for several minutes? That would not be all the duo would see. On April 1st of 1967, Keel and Heyer went out to Five Mile Creek Road near uh, Gallipolis Ferry, which is another town. It's next to Gallipolis. It's called Gallipolis Ferry. They went there to look for UFOs as it was a quiet place with no light pollution. Not long after arriving, Mary would once again point at a strange red light. This was no star as it bobbed up and down. It soon got so close to them that they observed the red light was a window of a larger craft. Keel thought he saw a bean inside, but Mary thought it was just some sort of partition. Keel then tried signaling to it with his flashlight, an experiment he had had success with in the past. The ship almost immediately shot straight up into the sky. The next day they returned. Once again they saw strange lights. This time Keel used his light to flash descend in Moore's coat. To their amazement, one did seem to lower its altitude. After a while, Mary left and Keel remained by himself. An hour or so later, Keel saw a craft that came so close to his car he could make out red port portholes along its side. The next afternoon, Keel, Heyer, and Point Pleasant Sheriff Johnson, along with Deputy Halstead, went back to the spot where Keel had seen the circular object, but he found no evidence, uh, so no burn marks. He thought it was that close that there were could be burn marks on the ground or something, but they didn't find anything. However, their police radio did give off strange noises when they were there investigating. Days later, Mary told Keel that when she left him alone that night and drove home, she too saw a large globe of light over the Ohio River. It had just slipped her mind. And I think it's funny that she got bored and left. Like, think of how many strange lights and UFOs you need to see when you're sitting there, like, watching strange lights and UFOs for you to go, you know what, I'm done, I'm going to call it in a night. On April 6th, Keel and Heyer would once again venture back to Five Mile Creek Road and again saw the strange lights. Keel continued signaling with his flashlight, and one appeared to answer, coming in close, just over the trees before disappearing. Mary Heyer would go on to write an official affidavit of this experience. 
And the affidavit is printed in the Mothman prophecies. I'm actually going to go ahead and read it out here. Uh, affidavit, to whom it may concern, I, Miss Mary Hire of 219 6th Street, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, a reporter for the Athens, Ohio, messenger, hereby swear that I was present at the following event and personally witnessed it as described. On the evening of April 6, 1967, I accompanied Mr. John A. Keel of New York City to an isolated hilltop on Five Mile Creek Road, south of Gallipolis Ferry, West Virginia. Shortly after 11 p.m., I observed a pale red object of undetermined size moving in a controlled manner slightly above the treetop level over a hill about 500 yards south of our position. There are no houses or roads on that hill. The object appeared to move cautiously and slowly through the sky to the far end of the sloping field, the light flickering on and off at an irregular pattern. As the object drew closer, Mr. Keel got out of the car and flashed a powerful flashlight directly at it three times. The object immediately returned the signal by flashing a brilliant white light three times. Then it rose upwards and a pale red light went completely out. State of West Virginia, County of Mason, to wit, signed Mary Hire. This day personally appeared before me in my office, county and state, Mary Hire, known to me personally and acknowledged the above statement to be true and that she personally signed off her signature in my presence, given under my hand this 21st day of June, 1967. My commission expires June 12, 1977. Howard Schultz, Notary Public. So that's just a smattering of uh, UFO sightings that were going on. Mary, like I said in the last episode, got hundreds of reports, uh, collected so many reports, not just about Mothman, but about but about UFOs and, and aliens and all of that. So much going on at this point in time. That's why we got to do three episodes. So... We're going to, like I said, next episode, we're really going to dig into Mary and John and their journey through all this strangeness. But we're going to take our musical interlude like we usually do tonight and actually next episode, too, is a little bit different. Uh, I've gotten permission from Anthony Sistone, who did the score for Hellier, to play a couple of his tracks on the show. Um, you actually heard some of his music on that promo but we're going to play a song called Indrid's Theme, which is about Indrid Cold, obviously, and fits the show perfectly. So we're going to play that. I'm going to link to his band camp in the show notes. Show notes. Wow. The show notes. Uh, it's eight bucks. It's a steal. Almost an hour's worth of music. Great instrumental stuff. You know, some ambient stuff, some acoustic guitar stuff, some piano stuff. Just great stuff. Uh, if you enjoy Hellier, it is something to pick up. If you just like ambient music, it is something to pick up. So check this out and go check him out. And we're back after it with local headlines.
We're back, and we have local headlines of, once again, three of them. Two of them from the UK. And this first one is from uh, The Deli Echo, written by Chris Yandel. And it reads, Police continue to investigate horrific animal stabbings in the New Forest. Officers are mounting extra patrols amid fears that modern-day Satanists or cultists are at work in the New Forest, which locals say have a long history of witchcraft Continuing into present day. Witchcraft is in uh, quotation marks, by the way. In the worst incident, a U was knifed to death and marked with pentagrams, a five-pointed star often associated with occultism. Police are investigating reports that another sheep in the Bramshaw area also suffered a fatal stab wound. In other incidents, a cow let out in the village returned with a wound on its neck and two calves grazing at Linwood near Ringwood suffered minor injuries to their shoulders. Mo Metcalf Fisher of the uh, Countryside Allegiance said the evil perpetrators of these horrific crimes must be severely punished. While it would appear that incidents of this nature are rare, it serves as an important reminder to local people and visitors to the forest that should be on high alert and report anything suspicious to the police. The National Farmers Union said it was shocked to learn of the incidents, which occurred between November 16th and 20th. Several people have taken to social media to condemn what they describe as sickening attacks on some of the forest free-roaming animals. They are all owned by people known as commoners, villaged with the right to let their livestock graze the area. Last night, police said that there have been no developments in the investigation. Anyone with information can contact Hampshire Constabulary on 101 Quoting, quoting crime reference number, and there's a big long number. Yeah, but I'm sure it's probably just some, you know, it's, I don't know, rowdy teenagers doing weird stuff. I doubt, you know, the Satanist thing still pops up to this day. We still have a little bit of satanic panic, I think, going along and and calling it witchcraft and all of this just seems a little, seems a little late 1980s, early 1990s to me, but it is a thing that happened. They have some pictures here, and Strange things in the new forest. So this next one is, uh, I think, also from the UK. And uh, it is from UFOholic, written by Steve. I think this is more of a blog, but it's an interesting story. Not super sure of its credibility, but the headline's great. Seven-foot-tall hellhound skeleton unearthed near ancient monastery in UK. Known by the name as Black Shuck, a name believed to derive from an old English word for black demon. The seven-foot-tall dog appeared as a bringer of death in many tales from 500 years ago in the 16th century. The inhabitants of the British Isles were horrified by the brutal deaths committed by this giant hillhound with burning red eyes. It took about 500 years for archaeologists to uncover its earthly remains under the ruins of Leston Abbey in Suffolk in a nameless grave 30 inches deep while several pottery fragments were covering its body. The massive dog skeleton was analyzed by a veterinarian who approximated its weight at 200 pounds when it lived, also measuring not less than 7 feet on its hind legs. Could these skeleton remains have belonged to the feared black shuck? And if so, why would it rest under holy ground after all the atrocities it had committed? Could this find reveal some kind of ritualistic form of burial based upon the feared dog? According to local folklore, Black Shuck made its presence noticed during a brutal storm on August 4th, 1577, at Holy Trinity Church 
in Blytheborough, almost seven miles from Liston in Suffolk. Fearful for their lives, the villagers found shelter inside the church, but the massive wooden doors couldn't withstand the rage of the beast. A thunder struck the door open and the snarling creature caved in. It claimed the life of a man and a boy before the steeple crashed through the roof. The giant dog then left the church, leaving behind him scorch mark from its claws on the door of the church, which can be observed even today. According to the latest radiocarbon dating test, the strange remains seem to correspond to the time when Black Shuck was terrorizing Eastern Anglia and Suffolk region. If it is indeed the feared hellish beast or someone's faithful and extremely big hunting dog, we can only assume, but the legend remains, with people remembering it through rock songs by naming local clubs or antique shops after the black dog who once terrorized the surrounding area. And I will link to this in the show notes, of course. There's a, there's a pretty good picture of the skeleton. You can't really tell the size of it, kind of, by what you see in the picture, but it's there to take a look at. And then the last one, this is from the Mercury News... This is man shot to death by his own front door booby trap. No name on this one. I just thought it was kind of a strange story, strange headline. Uh, a main man was killed by a device he made for the front door of his home, police say. Ronald Cryer, I think, C-Y-R, 65, called 911 on Thanksgiving and reported he had been shot, the Van Buren Police Department said. When officers arrived, they discovered a device on the front door of the man's home that was designed to fire a handgun if anyone attempted to enter, the department said. Police found other unknown devices around the house and contacted the state's bomb squad. After an hours-long investigation, authorities determined Cryer, who later died of his injuries, was hit after an unintentional discharge of his homemade devices, the department said. Van Buren is a small town at Maine's northern tip. Cryer's house is less than a third of a mile from the border crossing to St. Leonard, New Brunswick. A short and sweet, but just a strange story. A strange headline. I wanted to include it here. And that has been uh, the local headlines for episode 2.09. We're going to listen to our favorite boom that I'm sure just destroys your headphones, and I love it. And we'll be back with your small town secrets. Like I said, tonight is a special Your Small Town Secrets because we have uh, Carl Pfeiffer and Connor Randall on to talk about Spirits of the Stanley, the Stanley Hotel from Estes Park, which might be a future uh, Small Town Secrets episode. And of course, Hellier, which if you've been living under a rock for like the past year or so and you're into the paranormal and you have not heard about Hellier uh, you need to get on that. You need to watch it. Season one, you can watch it almost, you know, you can watch it on YouTube. It's on Amazon. Right now, season two is just on Amazon, but it will be out on YouTube uh, the 13th of December. And we get into it. It's it's a great story that I've been waiting for around for a long time to be told, and it's here. And now we're two seasons into it. Uh, it's a small town secret if there ever was one. Greg and Dana Newkirk, uh, which you might know if you're into uh, the stuff that we're into on this show, uh, got some emails a while back to go and hunt some goblins in Kentucky, and when they started looking into it, they found anything but, and I'm not going to give too much away, but it's a rabbit hole, it's an important rabbit hole, and if you haven't watched it yet, you have to watch it. I will have links in the show notes, of course, to get to all of that, but let's uh, 
let's hear what Carl and Connor have to say. I'm going to preface this a little bit. I'm a little rusty at Skype and had a little snafu and lost the first couple minutes of the interview. But um, I'll just explain what, what, what we're walking into. So, you know, they got on Skype. We explained, you know, we broke the ice. And I first asked them if they, like, what got them into the paranormal? If they had any experiences or what it was. And Carl just said he's always had uh, an interest in it. He's always been, you know, drawn to the dark fringes of stuff, uh, much like me. And uh, he, you know, just growing up in the 90s with unsolved mysteries and Ghostbusters and all that stuff, he just always had an interest in it. No, no experience really geared him toward it, which is kind of the same ballpark that I'm in. Uh, but Connor told me that he had had an experience at the Stanley Hotel when he was 10 where he just saw this door open by itself, and that is what kind of sparked his interest. And in Spirits of the Stanley, which uh, is a YouTube documentary that they did before Hellier, he, uh, I, there is an episode near the end where he goes into that and talks about that experience uh, more in depth. And then I asked them about, if you've been watching Hellier, they have a spirit that they think follows them around. His name is Eddie. He has popped up. He has been mentioned a couple of times in Hellier. But he originated at the Stanley. So I asked him, I asked them to expand on Eddie's origin a little bit. And so we're going to come into the interview just at the beginning of that question when Carl was kind of describing how they started getting phantom smells and stuff just went from there and all of a sudden there was this new entity around that wasn't there before. So the first the first words you're actually going to hear in the interview are body odor and that is Carl kind of talking about phantom smells and trying to figure out if, if they were smelling uh, smells that weren't there or if they just had a smelly person in uh, the tour that night. But that's where it picks up. I apologize. I figured this was better than trying to get them to repeat it because it just never works out well when you try to get everyone to read, you know, you'll lose something. So it was my fault, and uh, that's where it picks up. But after that, it's a great interview. And uh, take a listen. I'll be back to finish out the show after uh, Carl and Connor here. Body odor that would kind of circle the group once or twice and then sort of dissipate. Uh, we're in, of course, small, dark rooms for hours together. And so, like, we would be very aware if there was any group members that uh, that might be kind of tracking that smell around. And this smell consistently come and go. And then there started to be physical interactions. Uh, one woman one night felt a kiss on her cheek um, and the smell kind of manifested at the same time. So all these little like validating and establishing things would come together and we would have psychics uh, show up on the ghost hunts and they would kind of say, you know, do you have like a new spirit around here named Eddie? And we weren't talking about him at this point yet. And we were like, oh, that's interesting because there was a purported psychic last week who asked us about a new spirit named Eddie too, you know? So over the course of about a year, we were kind of assembling all of these little details that we were paying attention to these trends and these consistencies until eventually, like, it seemed like we had put together sort of a, a story of who this spirit might have been. And uh, he was deemed Eddie. We thought that he had um, seemingly got into kind of a a, a fight, uh, some sort of violence um, with a, a boyfriend of a lover or something like that and uh and he was stabbed and we think he just he went with someone he was tagging along with one of the guests up to the stanley and was just like this place seems cool i want to stick around and 
So we put him on the tour. As soon as we did that, he stopped telling us any information about himself, and we never got anything more out of him. And the activity was pretty good for a couple of months, and then it started to kind of wane as we think he probably, the novelty wore off, and he realized how much effort it was. Um, and after that, he just kind of, he was our mischievous kind of a trickster type spirit that would just kind of hang out with us. Um, whether or not he came out every night, it was always up in the air, but, uh, he became one of our most prevalent ones towards the end at the hotel. Okay. <clears throat> um, so what I watched, like I said, I watched all, what is it? Like 19, 19 little YouTubes and I'll make sure to link to that. So everyone can go and go and watch that one. But um, it's like a lot of that, of course, revolves around the Estes method. And it's really fun to go back and watch that and see it evolve from really, I guess, if I'm reading this right, that you guys just wanted to do something to kind of legitimize the spirit box a little more than what it was at the time. So like when you go back and you watch spirits, you know, it, 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 you can watch it evolve from Connor sitting there with with earbuds in his ears and his hands just clamped to the sides of his head to what it eventually becomes in Hellier. Are you guys surprised how how the Estes method has evolved over the years from just sort of this like experiment to legitimize or to help make the spirit box make a little more sense to this kind of psychical like communication device that it has kind of become once you once Greg and Dana kind of got a hold of it, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's totally in a weird way, it's it's yeah, it's kind of surprising and shocking how popular it's become. I mean, mm -hmm. so we we started it like you said to legitimize a little bit more of the spirit box. We got tired because Carl and I were taking tourists around for to learn about ghosts. We got tired of people hearing what they wanted to hear, and so we're like, well, how do we how do we fix that? Well, let's just have one person listen, and then it it was like, well. Mm -hmm. What if they can hear the questions? We'll put the biggest headphones we can find. Well, what if they can read lips? Well, put a blindfold on them. Mm -hmm. And then, well, what if what if they can hear? Well, let's put them in a separate room. Let's put them away from the, you know. And so it just, we have all these different variations of it. But the thing is, it's like, in a weird way, I think the way that it that it has become so successful makes sense. I think that maybe one of the growing theories about it that Greg hypothesizes as well, which is very interesting, is that it basically is um, giving the brain an excuse to hear sounds, and that enables whatever blockage a person might have, you know, from receiving messages from the other side, whatever that may be, that may enable that communication to occur. And it seems like it's just this perfect mix of a lot of people being able to do it pretty well. So the, the big important thing is that you have the right equipment, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's been wonderful. And we're, we, we're still trying variations and oh, logging sure. similarities and yeah, having a, having a good time with it. It's, it is weird, but you know, I practice, I always recommend people to practice, um, keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's funny. So many people only use this equipment and stuff when they're on a ghost hunt, but in a weird way, that's almost like, to me, that's like only playing, like being in the NBA and like only playing, uh, you know, basketball when you're on the court and it's a game. Like, like practice, you know, get good at these right. things. And so we, uh, yeah, have had a really good time sort of watching it and helping it evolve. Okay. Um, so I'm going to kind of, the questions get more towards Hellier as they go on. Um, so 
I was always, I've always, this is a good one that I've always wondered. How has Hellier changed your views on the paranormal? Or has it at all? Whew. Diving in with the, the heavy one right there. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, I think it, if, if anything, I mean, I think that there's a lot of validation that's come from that and mm-hmm. then expansion. So for me personally, my interest in the paranormal, um, though at a very early age started with, um, I think a little bit of ghosts. It was in like elementary school with the height of the X-Files that yeah. I kind of wound up getting into aliens first. And then it was later in high school, late high school and college, when Ghost Hunter started to get very popular, that it kind of segued into ghosts because that was more accessible at that point. Um, so for me, like Connor, I think it's been very much everything in the paranormal goes that that I'm interested in. And I think that the ideas of that sort of stuff connecting together or being in a similar space or not necessarily being at odds with each other um, was always a nice holistic idea. And it got to get weird and get strange um, even more so than I think something like ghosts. And so, you know, then you start reading like Keel and you start reading mm-hmm. stuff like Bali, uh, which take kind of the UFO ideas and blast them into a much wider space where it's linked a little bit more with other phenomena. Toward the end of my time at the Stanley, uh, a lot more of my ideas about ghosts were starting to be influenced by um, more of the psychical type uh, hypotheses, uh, sort of ideas of almost like an unconscious telekinetic activity uh, manifesting in the ghostly sort of experience, perhaps in addition to something like uh, a spirit. Um, So it was stuff like that was kind of like talking and percolating and influencing my brain at that point. And so Hellier was a good example or a good case to, to go out there and actually see how much connection there might be between these things. Cause when we started, it was a simple kind of goblins case with the implication mm-hmm. of something more, you know, I mean, even the fact that the original emails that we got that kicked us off on this Hellier project, um, this guy says that these small little creatures were coming out of a mine on the back of his property. But in, I think, his first email, he says he believes that you're, that they're extraterrestrials, which is a really odd jump uh, when you see something coming out of an, a mine on your property to assume that they're from space. You know, like, that's it's a weird yeah. connect right off the bat. Um, so th- the elements were there, but it's only propelled us into these spaces of occultism and uh our own kind of theories of just like, well, can we talk to this phenomena through more psychical or experimental type means like the Estes method? Uh, and we did get validation with that seemingly. So it, it started to stack up where a lot of it, it was kind of equally validating, uh, across a lot of fronts and continue to sort of expand about what influences, what, what has the same source, what are the connections? Um, I think that, it's it's a broad a broad question to answer, but uh, but I think that that sort of encapsulates it in the uh, in terms of the possibility of it all connecting and the validation that we're getting to support that idea. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I'd agree totally. It's it's you know it's funny. Hellier breaks down. There's people have very jarring reactions to it either way if they already have an investment in paranormal phenomena our our language our sort of jargon has changed where it's not necessarily oh 
did you read into this case about aliens? Instead, we'll say, did you read into this case about the phenomena? There's there's just this wider range of all of this sort of unification theory that's really coming into play more and more. So it's I hope that it's breaking down barriers between the crypto world, the alien world, and the ghost world. And I know that it's that it's kind of done that for my mentality for sure. Yeah, me too. Like I've always kind of had that, maybe not always, but that idea of like this is all connected or this is all the same somehow. And that really is how Hellier starts off. I mean, if you think about it, the first thing wrist quotation works set does is he sends or not wrist, I suppose that he get, they ghost hunters get an email about goblins that may or may not be aliens. So right there at the very beginning, it's already crossing a path, you know, mm. that, you know, I, I think, I think hopefully it is opening up more discussion for, the guys that are really in the Bigfoot to talk to the guys that are really in the UFOs to also talk to the guys that are really in the ghost, you know, and start thinking of new ways to approach it. Yeah. You know, and I hope that's working and I think it will uh, continue. You know, it's uh, that idea has gotten way more popular over the last couple of few years. And I think Hellier is something that will really promote that idea forward. Yeah. You know. Well, hey, well, you know, through this, you're part of the cause, too. So mm-hmm. it's yes, good. For, for good or bad, whatever happens to me. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I'm, so now I'm going to ask a really specific question. So um, there's a lot of books mentioned in Hellier in all, through all 15 episodes. But there's one that I don't think has ever been mentioned. And I'm not going to say the name of it because I asked Greg about it one time. And he was very cryptic about it. He, he kind of felt like he wanted someone, he wanted people to discover their own. I will say the book is by Max Freedom Long. And I wanted to ask Carl, since Carl seems to be the uh, keeper of the cipher, that seems to be your job now. <laughs> that um, So what this is, I don't know if you guys have talked about it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, yes. I'm looking at it as we speak. Okay. <laughs> have you... So for people who don't know, if you've watched, what is that, like the second episode is when you start getting wrist emails. He sends coordinates in an email, but he does a very weird thing. He could have easily have just typed these coordinates out in the email, but he doesn't do that. He sends a picture of what looks like the back of a business card or something with these numbers written down. And then that card is lying on top of a book, of a page from a book, specifically page 132. (laughs) <laughs> have you guys tried to cipher that book or tried to do anything with page 132 to see if anything has ever come about from it? Yeah, it's um we've done a lot with that book. That for me specifically, it's always been difficult to kind of juggle everything because right. um especially in the last few months uh when it comes to the terrorist stuff because yeah. Um, I, I want to dive in and start doing a lot of the research and stuff myself, but I also have to edit the thing. Um, that one during that time, especially in the, the 14 months between season one and two, um, and in a lot of the time since, um, that always tickled at the back of my mind was specifically like that photo and the wrist emails, because Mm -hmm. at that point in time, I was thinking coordinates or not, there's a lot of mystery still involving this because this photo was taken on an open page of a book. We know what that book is. Why? Like it, it, everything about it was so deliberate that I was convinced that there had to be some sort of deeper meaning to it. Um, so I, I did, I did a lot with it. Um, 
I, I read the book. Uh, there, it's a really interesting book. Um, yeah. It's, but but finding that direct connect to how it applies has been. Uh, it, it was always a challenge, and that's part of the reason why we never really talk about it in the series, was because we never found a way to make it link up, and so it never really became its own scene or its own right. moment. But it was just kind of dangling in the background. Um, yeah. So it it is kind of interesting, especially I think with um, with some of the the work that we've done in the last few months, as people have seen in season two, mm-hmm. and I'm curious if that book might not wind up applying more down the road with some of our more recent discoveries uh, and whether or not it might have a chance to tie in there. Yeah. Right. Because if, if, if season two has taught me anything, it's that nothing has been done by mistake, mm-hmm. yeah, you know? Mm. And I don't know, I don't know if it's, I, yeah, I think about does the cipher have something to do for it or are the coordinates just possibly like simple book code, you know, I don't, but I have I I do have the Euphonauts book. I have not had a chance to sit down and like read it read it yet. I've got this episode and one more episode and then I take my little season break. So in a few weeks I'm probably going to sit down and actually read uh Cypher of the Euphonauts and you know mm-hmm. get into it a little bit, but I have not had a chance to do it yet. What do you want, Cat? Go away. You're in for you're in for a trip. It's weird. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> but it, but in the best way. And and, and you know Right. Yeah, like Carl like you guys were saying, they're Terry gave so much and, and we're still, we're still learning things. Mm. Okay. So um, this one, I don't think it's, it's might be a little spoilery, but I think it's enough to entice people. And I just, I wanted to ask Carl how, how he felt during his uh, hypnosis session. I won't mention which episode or what for, but I was always really interested in like, and I can't remember. I should have went back and watched the episode, and I didn't. But I don't know if it shows like why was why was Carl the the guinea pig for that, and how how was that experience overall? Um, <laughs> it was complicated. <laughs> it was tricky. Um, <clears throat> I think it was an idea. Like the the question of who would go was floating around for weeks before we wound up doing the experiment, um, and we were definitely leaning towards. Uh, Connor and myself uh, leading up to that moment. And then we sort of hashed it out uh, finally (laughs) for good on camera right there. Um, It was like, I was super open. I was excited to do it myself Um, from a storytelling perspective. I was really excited about the concept of kind of emerging from behind the camera after a number of episodes and sort of the audience having this like weird out of body experience uh, vis-a-vis like myself. And then, um, sort of them having that experience alongside me because we'd been together this whole experience with the eyes of the camera. Um, I thought that that was really kind of a creative uh, situation. So I was excited about it for that reason too. But the experience itself, it was from a purely functional standpoint, like going through it, it was very pleasant. Um, I did not know going into it um, whether or not uh, Lonnie, the hypnotist, was going to be setting it up the way that he was the original experiment or if he was going to be doing something very different. Um, but we had the goal in mind. Uh, and so by the end of it, it was very pleasant, just like any other guided meditation, basically, or, or trance state. Um, I had a lot of frustration when I left it. Uh, it was for my brain. I have a super analytical brain and I don't know a whole lot about hypnosis, but Connor and I have even talked since that we almost feel like there's like two stages of hypnosis where there's a level of um, 
a trance state and then there's the level of the earlier experiment where you are just lost in an experience uh more like a dream almost um and mine was not that uh i i I did not get lost in the experience at all um but as lonnie and greg and a number of others have talked about that doesn't mean that i wasn't hypnotized that was exactly where i was supposed to be it's not a state where your brain is more shut off it's a state where your brain is actually more turned on and you're hyper aware and not less aware um and so for me it was more of an exercise of trying to uh put my conscious mind aside i have a very over analyzing conscious mind and so i was trying to just set that aside and kind of set myself up to give purely unconscious off the cuff reflex type answers whether that was a visual thing where i would grab a book off of a shelf in this world that was created and i'd flip to a page and i'd read the first thing that i saw and that was my answer you know or whether or not something would pop into my head and i would just spit that out i was i was trying to get over that conscious brain that says well in episode two we learned this so maybe it's just that you know like i I try to throw all that out um and so when i came out of it it was super tough because there's like you know uh, however many five, six sets of eyes looking at me, this camera right in my face. So knowing there's, you know, thousands more eyes looking back and wanting something super tangible and mind blowing in that moment. And just, it, it was very kind of uncomfortable in that regard, very vulnerable type of feeling. So it was not a super pleasant experience after the fact. Um, but not for the reasons that I think people would expect mm-hmm. as they watch that scene sort of build up. Right. Now I was just wondering how that went because that that was that was a fun that was a fun episode. And I have one more kind of Connor question that someone wanted me to ask. Um, how you mentioned in in Hellier season two. That you are, uh, that you have, that your faith background is is that, that of a Catholic. Mm-hmm. How has how has this like? How do you how have you been juggling those two things, Hellier and all of this stuff, and and your faith has has that made you look at stuff in different ways or anything like that? You know, it's funny. I still. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it definitely hasn't made me like question my faith or anything like Mm -hmm. that. I think that there are, I think that there are definite, you know, specifically regarding my faith of Catholicism. I think there's definitely some very, uh, sort of strange mysteries and, and mysticism that's attached to the saints as well, you know? And so there's like all of this bizarre happenings. They're just put in a very strict and looked at in a different format. Um, right. you know, I was, I was told like a long time ago, uh, you know, that God is an artist and, and my thought has always been, and I think I also heard this from Tenny once where it's like, well, what artist only paints one painting? You know, there's all of these different <clears throat> mysteries out there. So, so I think that the, I think that the framework, I don't look at it in so much of a straight up, this is pan from the ancient times, et cetera, et cetera, like that. I, I look at it more of like, this is an energy that is prevalent in our world. And that's the name that we're giving it. And, you know, each one of us on the team is on a different spectrum with that. Um, But it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a weird, wonderful world. And, and I think all the people listening to this are, are curious people as well. So, so I think, uh, yeah, we'll keep looking. Awesome. So what, 
any any favorite moments from Hellier and or Spears of the Stanley that you know you guys like I don't know any <laughs> yeah it's uh it's tough my my editing. so many of them yeah yeah my director brain has to like ex- like step back from the episodes what happened connor do you have anything off the top of your head you know i want to because you said spirit specifically mm-hmm. one of the things that i think uh sort of sits under the radar sometimes but i always am interested to point it out you remember so in spirits of the stanley which is a a youtube series that that carl uh, michelle tate myself made before we made hellier um in a weird way it was like the the preamble to sort of the hellier style like carl was learning his way you know and that's that's cool to see too um but what basically uh, there was there was one episode where I was on under the Estes method, um, named after Estes Park, Colorado, which is appropriate on this podcast. But but mm-hmm. where I was in the Estes method, and I could uh, hear numbers, right? So yes, I I loved that part. I'm I'm sitting there, and uh, whatever spirits and energy that is talking through me, I guess you could say, is saying numbers over and over and over again. In my mind, I was sitting there thinking, well, I, well, I sure hope they just asked for the ghost's phone number, you know? And right. so it's like, well, well, what's going on with this? It turns out that on the outside, unbeknownst to me, the team was sitting there and, and our friend Mark had, had four on his hand. And he was like, how many fingers am I holding up? Now, that brings into light a whole new question. Because Eddie, who is, we think, potentially the spirit that was answering, was never saying the number four but he was saying 30 other numbers or whatever, you know? And so it's like, well, right, yeah, I well what, what can ghosts see? That's always been the big thing there. What, what can they see? What is their experience like? Was he just playing a joke on us or is that, does that give us some insight? Um, that's one of my favorite moments from that series. Uh, from Hellier, it's, it's a whole other ball game. I, right. I think I was so happy that we found that we actually caught Carl on camera deciphering the first or the second Terry wrist email um, mm-hmm. realizing that it's connected to the interview and going through that. And then I, I've been, what are the odds of that even like, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's one of those that I don't think about too often, but it's like a three and a half or four hour drive to Hellier from Cincinnati yes, it is. and Rashad, it was early on in the drive, but like, you know, I was reading stuff aloud and going through every single piece of paper that Greg had in his, his file folder. And like, what? Yeah, Rashad was just shooting a little B-roll, but it wasn't like he was going to film the entire drive. So the fact that that happened live on camera is, is very odd. <laughs> That's very yeah, odd. Yeah, because it's it's become its own thing. It's whole av- you know, the whole Indrin Cold Avenue, which is what this episode that you guys will be on will be about. It's Point Pleasant Part 2, and that's that's what I'm doing is Indrin Cold and other UFOs. UFO sightings I, from around I, the I time. Listened, yeah, I listened to your Point Pleasant Part 1 today. So it's like, I know. oh, I see where we're going. Okay. <laughs> I know. I looked at my listens and was like, oh, I've got six in Arvada and I've got 13 in Loveland or the other way around uh-huh. or something. Like, I wonder who that is. Nice. But, yeah. But, no, thanks. Actually, I was going to ask, ask that, like, when you said, oh, I have a great memory from Spirits of the Stanley. I was actually going to ask that, like, way later. I just forgot to. So I lumped everything in together. So, so thanks for that. Um, Any other... You guys didn't have any other upcoming projects that may or may, that may not be like Hellier related? Um, for me, it's very much right now. I'm working on uh, 
watching to see what season three is going to shape up and and when that's going to kind of start taking off. Before that, I have another feature length documentary project that I'm doing with Greg and Dana Mm -hmm. about another one of their numerous other strange stories that I've been wanting to tell as well. Um, So that one is in the process uh, of being shot, being edited, being reshot, and my perfectionism, (laughs) (laughs) just reshooting stuff a bunch of times. Um, And then, of course... Right now in the middle, too, um, I interrupted it as Hell Year Season 2 uh, took off, but I was doing a bunch of mini documentary episodes, uh, about five to nine minutes of um, the Euphemet podcast um, right? Uh, that I'd done, I think, like the first four uh, of those mini episodes on the Planet Weird channel um, before Hell Year 2 took off. And I got to get back to those and finish the, uh, the last <laughs> half of the season. So that's also on my to-do list. All right, I think that's good. So let's see, let's see, what is the day? Today is the 6th, so next weekend, right, is when it'll be on YouTube mm-hmm. for free. Right now it's on Amazon Prime for anyone that has Amazon Prime or wants to sign up for the trial and watch it and then cancel Amazon Prime. <laughs> and uh, and it's great. Like, it's it's the documentary, and like, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to have Greg and or Dana on next episode. I'm still waiting for emails back from Greg because I'm sure he's amazingly busy. Um, like, I remember them talking about this, like, on Mysterious Universe back in, like, 2000. Like, he had just gotten the emails. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I remember... So it's been it's been a long time coming, and as soon as it popped up, I knew exactly what it was. I'm like, oh, that's that, that's that Goblin story from, like, 2012 that he talked about for, like, nice. three minutes after, you know, pimping the, the Bigfoot documentary. And, but it has become like everything about it is exactly what I've always wanted in a paranormal documentary. It is shot beautifully. I mean, real, I really mean that it is, Thank you. it looks gorgeous. It's edited gorgeous. Like the research that you guys have done and everything is, you know, the guy, the things that you are chasing, I think is exactly what people that are interested in this stuff need to be chasing. Um, you know, no more, like it just, it, I think it's really expanded, expanded this whole thing, and I hope that there's a season three, and I hope that, you know, it continues to do that. But I wanted, I'm going to go ahead and end that. So I just want to thank you guys for coming on real quick. Um, and uh, I think that'll do it for episode 2.09. We will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, part three, 2.10, and the end of the season. So we're going to finish out Point Pleasant. We're going to finish out the season, take a little break, and come back for season three. So uh, let's get to uh, the plug-in. The plug-in. Um, if you have a small town secret, an experience, a local legend, uh, a true crime tale of your small town, cryptid report, a UFO report, a haunted house, anything, and you want to share it on the show, you can do it a whole bunch of ways. You can send me a story, an email. You can send me some uh, sources off the internet. We can... Use that. You can call in and we'll do a little interview if that's what you want to do as long as you have Skype. A bunch of stuff we can do to get that on there and a bunch of ways to get it to me. Easiest way is to go to stscast.com. Bottom of the main page, there's an email form that you can use to uh, send your tales to me. You can also get at me on social media. I'm most active on Twitter and that is at stscast. Facebook is also at stscast. And Instagram is stscast.gram. 
If you do go to the website, be sure to check out all the other great stuff on there. We have uh, pictures and show notes to all the episodes that I've done. We have links if you want looking to buy some some merch. We've got some t-shirts. We've got, you know, we've got some coffee mugs. We've got some stickers. We've got hoodies. We've got a tote bag. Uh, all, all that will go and help the show and uh, help me keep doing what I'm doing. On that note, please be sure to check out Manscape and support Support the sponsors for the show. Supporting them supports Big Head Media, which in turn also supports the show. But I think that about does it for this episode. So until next time, remember, every town has a secret. What is yours? the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.